0: we live in a culture that has a superiority complex do you realize that we we think we're the best we think we're the somehow the pinnacle of human experience we think that because we've experienced the enlightenment because we've gone through the industrial revolution that now some somehow things are much more complex things are just better things are far more superior than they've ever been before. We now live in a day of easy access. Things are just at our fingertips. Within moments, we can have entertainment. We can have comfort. We can have food. We can have social contact. It's all right there, right at our fingertips. And our technological advancements have resulted in a culture like no other a culture of comfort, a culture that doesn't experience suffering, a culture of easy access. So in addition to these uh, advancements in availability, we also believe that our knowledge has somehow resulted in a a complexity of thought. We've learned so much that now the, the challenges... Uh, that, that, that it actually challenges the foundations of our faith and, or, and our morality. It's no longer acceptable for us to live within the simple confines of faith that previous generations have done, that our forefathers have lived in. Well, this is too complex. What we know about science, what we know about our world now, makes it impossible to hold to the same standards of faith, the same standards of morality. How do we, how do we live like this? Again, we have a superiority complex. While our advancements in, in technology may make it more difficult to discern certain things, we have issues in medical ethics that are harder now than they ever have been before. But aside from that, things aren't really that unique. <clears throat> We're wrong to think that issues pertaining to our holiness partici- the issues that pertain to purity or to sex are somehow uh, much more severe now than they ever have been. That, that we live in a, 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 a day of superior, uh, superior or, or complexity when it comes to uh, sex. I mean, I know that we've, we've experienced the, the sexual liberation of the 60s, which has freed us maybe, in some sense, and in, in some people believe, freed us from the trappings of biblical modesty and prudence. But this is not the first sexual liberation ever experienced. In fact, it's not the second. It's not the third. It's not even the fourth. We've always dealt with this issue of sex. And we're, we're mistaken if we think that because sex is more visible, that it's more rampant today, more than it has ever been. The reality is that this couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we've been going through First Thessalonians as we've been meeting here Sunday mornings. And places in the Bible like Thessalonica and Corinth were renowned for their sexual license. Do you realize that? Thessalonica, that we're talking about today, was in the shadow of Mount Olympus, which was the home of the Greek gods. And the Greek god of choice in Thessalonica was Epaphrodite, the goddess of beauty, of love, and of sexuality. The the temple that was devoted to Epaphrodite was basically an elaborate brothel. And everywhere you went throughout the city, there were countless cult prostitutes To serve their goddess by performing acts of worship to any paying clientele. And to be a good and faithful follower of Paphrodite meant that you engaged in sexual license to follow after that. Here, we can guard ourselves. Yes, sex is visible. Sex is everywhere. But, you know, we can turn off the TV. We cannot pay for cable. We can block certain websites with pornographic material. We can even get rid of internet altogether. We cannot go to the mall if Victoria's Secret causes us to stumble, right? But in Thessalonica, there was no escape. If you were going to live and you were going to work, you encountered sex daily because it was so ingrained in the culture, to have a conversation with your family member or your neighbor who happened to worship Epaphrodite meant that you had conversations that pertain towards sex. You couldn't escape from it. And so, we need to keep that in mind. In addition... To this complexity, it was not uncommon in those days for men to have their wives, but to also have mistresses and to go and participate with these cult prostitutes. So there was actually like multiple levels of of sex that were happening daily, continually. And and to be an upstanding citizen in Thessalonica means that if you could afford to do this, that you would. This is what the culture did. Whereas here, I mean, we think about the Tiger Woods situation, we realize that adultery in itself is basically shunned. I mean, think about the backlash that culture had against Tiger Woods and his infidelity. It's not like that in Thessalonica. In fact, that kind of thing is encouraged. It's almost expected from those that had the means. Now, I say all this because I want to make something clear. Sexual temptation is not unique. It's not more sophisticated. It's not some kind of greater struggle in our day. In fact, the opposite is true. Because again, we can turn it off. So as we think about God's will for us, our sanctification, I want us to get rid of this idea that life is somehow more difficult, somehow more complex here. And that Paul couldn't possibly know how hard it is to live in this day and age with the sexual temptations that we see. He's riding to a situation where it's far worse. And he's calling them to sanctification. He's calling them to sexual purity. He's calling them to face their temptations in order to play their part in the process of sanctification. And the reality is, so are we. So today, as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8, through I want us to examine God's desire for sanctification. I want us to affirm the importance of sexual purity. And I also want us to briefly think about how we can fight for sexual purity. So, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So Paul begins here by saying, Finally, Finally, I'm getting to my primary purpose of this letter. The rest of 1 Thessalonians is Paul's attempt to fill, help them fill up what is lacking in their faith. He's describing how their relationship with Christ and their relationship to one another as being a part of the body of Christ ought to affect the way they live. Paul has just prayed. That God would sanctify them, and now he wants to make it clear why this is such a big deal, why this is so important for them, and he gives particulars in how they are to do it, and so he starts by asking and urging them to remember the instructions that they have already received. See Paul has already taught them he 's already instructed them in this matter, yet they they haven 't fully embraced. They haven't fully lived according to it. And so Paul is calling them back to remember, to take seriously the instruction that they had received from him already. But he wants to make something else absolutely clear. These instructions were not simply Paul's. You look in verse 1 and then in verse 2, he says that they, these instructions were given in and through the Lord Jesus. These weren't just Paul's instructions. This wasn't just a pastor talking to a congregation. He's actually giving them the instructions that he received from Christ. These are Jesus' commands. This is what Jesus is calling them to. This is how Jesus said, you are to live and to please God. So this is not optional, right? This is a big deal. This is not to be taken lightly. to come to Christ is to take His yoke upon you. His, burden is e- His yoke is easy and His burden is light, yes, but there is still a yoke. There is still a burden. Christ said in John fourteen fifteen that if you love Me, you will keep My commands. And if you come to Christ, you're saying that you love Christ. You desire to worship Christ. You desire to follow Christ. And to do that, you must follow His commands. Salvation is not about freeing you simply from the consequences of your sin. It's about freeing you from sin. Away from sin. That you might turn from sin. God doesn't... We've talked time and time again about how sin is really rebellion against the very nature of God. Right? It's not just like God set some arbitrary moral standards and says, you have to live by these. Every command that Christ gives is a reflection of who He is. and to, So to deny them is to deny God. It's to deny His very nature. It's to live as a, rebel, as a rebel to who He is. And so why would God forgive us of our acts of rebellion only to leave us as rebels? Only that we might continue in a rebellion. God, uh, the sacrifice of Christ is not simply to free us from the consequence of our sin, but to free us from the sin, the slavery to sin, so that we might follow Christ, so that we might belong to Him. As Paul says it in Romans, right? You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. There are no two ways about it. It's not, there's not some middle line where Christ somehow forgives you from all the consequences of your slavery to sin, but yet you stay a slave to sin. We're called to belong to Christ. We're to be with Him. But to be with Him, we must be like Him. God says that it's His will that you might be saved, to be, and that requires that you be sanctified, to be holy as He is holy. So even in sloughing off and slacking in this area is disregarding God. Being slow to obey, to delay, to procrastinate in obedience to God's will is considered a rejection of God. Do you realize that? Anything other than obedience is disobedience. For God, there's no two ways about it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Intended, but not acted upon obedience, is disobedience. That's just how it is. And God's will is for your sanctification. God wills for is for you to obey Christ's instruction in how you ought to live and to please Him. In the Greek, it, it's actually even more severe. It actually says how it is necessary for you to walk and to please God. It's not how you ought to walk and to please God. It's how it is necessary for you to walk and to please God. So Paul couldn't be more serious about this call to sanctification. God's will is that you be holy. God's will is that you be devoted to Him. God's will is that you be consecrated in worship to Him alone. God's will is that you be dedicated to Him. God's will is that you be pure and though Paul recognizes and has affirmed over and over again I mean we've looked from chapter 1 through chapter 3 already that the Thessalonians are striving to obey and to live in a way that is pleasing to God he urges them to do it more and more they haven't arrived yet they haven't made it they're still in process they're still working towards it there's still work to be done now, if you're at all like me, you beat yourself up over sin. You realize that you haven't made it there yet. And the tendency, when you look at this, is to fall into that trap of works-based salvation. As if my reconciliation to God depends upon me. Depends on what I can do. I mean, this is, it's the performance trap. And we live in constant fear that we won't be good enough for God. I mean, I look at passages like this and it seems clear to me, I don't measure up in this way. I don't don't even come close. And deep down we know that we can't measure up. I mean, to be like Christ, to be perfectly righteous, to be perfectly holy, to be perfectly obedient to the Father's will, how can I do that? I can't. I can't do it. Left on my own, I will never attain the righteousness that God requires. But thanks be to God that our sanctification is a process. He calls us to holiness. This is a clear and distinct call. We are to do this. But God gives us grace and He gives us the power to walk in that. God patiently allows for our sanctification. And it begins when we recognize the perfect holiness of God and our own sinfulness. And we realize that there is a chasm there that we need to overcome. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to turn from our rebellion and to believe in the necessary sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the ransom that our sins deserve. Sanctification continues when we rest upon the completed work of of Jesus, when we know that in His resurrection it affirmed that God's just wrath against our sin has been satisfied, and we endeavor to walk in obedience, to follow after Christ. And when we do that, we receive the Holy Spirit who actively works within us as He applies the instruction of Christ to our hearts and to our minds. So that our desires change. Our desires become like God's desires. So that we grow in Christ-likeness. A desire to obey the Father completely. That's what Christ-likeness really is. And as we behold Christ... As we gaze upon Him, as we focus our intentions upon Him, our lives upon Him, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. We become more and more and more like Him. Our desires change. We find that we want God more, and we want sin less. And so we are changed. But it's a process. We put off sin and we put on Christ. And the more we seek to live for and to please God, the more we become like Christ. And that's what Paul is calling us to endeavor after. Two, two weeks ago we looked at chapter 3 verses 11-13 through 13, and we saw that we're not alone in this process, that God is actually working sanctification in us so that we might be able to walk in it. And God doesn't do this by downloading a list of commands into our minds so that we begrudgingly obey. Oh, I need to do this, so now I'm going to do that. Oh, I need to do this, so now I'm going to do that. As if we're just like, we see it, and then we do it, but our heart's not in it. That's Pharisaism. That's legalism. That's self-righteousness. To think that we can uphold a list of, of commands. No, God works in us so that He changes our desires, so that our desires become to please God, to actually find our pleasure in Him. Psalm 16.11 says that God makes known to us the path of life, so He reveals God the instructions, He reveals, reveals the commands, He reveals God's means of salvation to us, the path of life, so that we realize in God's presence there's fullness of joy and in his right hand there are pleasures forevermore we start to realize that ultimate joy is not found in all this junk that we've been seeking after ultimate pleasure is not found in all this junk that we've been fighting for in this world but it's in God himself so instead of finding temporary unsustainable pleasure in the things of this world and we know this to be true right We seek to satisfy ourselves in in the same old things over and over again, only to find our lusts unquenched. And so we seek it again and again and again, and it never satisfies. So rather than seeking them in the things of this world, we find our soul's satisfaction in something far greater. We find our pleasure in an intimate relationship with Christ. And this leads us to the rest of the passage, verses 3 through 8. They deal with our looking for soul-satisfying intimacy in the wrong places. That we seek to satisfy ourselves in sexual immorality. Let's look again at the text. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For this, uh, for God has not called you to, for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Paul then defines what sanctification looks like for the Thessalonians. And he gives us a list of three things. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, and that no one should transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, which we know from verse 7 is impurity. So basically, Paul is saying that sanctification for the Thessalonians is not limited to, but is, he's specifically dealing with right now, the issue of sexual purity, that you be sexually pure. Now, immediately, this is one of those passages that we want to qualify, we want to quantify, and we want to clarify. I'm sure the young men in this room are automatically thinking, okay, let's define this now. What exactly is okay? What exactly is permissible? What at least is is, is forgivable? And then there's that, that annoying, wrongly framed question, well, how far is too far? Which seems like it always comes up when we talk about this issue. But Paul is not viewing sexuality in terms of permissibility, but rather in terms of what is pleasing to God. Remember, his desire is to teach them how it is necessary for them to walk and to please God. This issue is not a matter of what you can get away with. What's the loophole? What, what are the exceptions? But rather, what is most beneficial? What is pleasing? What is honorable in the sight of God? And so if we want to please God, we need to respond to these according to what Christ commands. And He first says that we should abstain from sexual immorality. That you should avoid it. That you should keep yourself from it. I mean, we've heard about abstinence. We This is an understandable term, right? It means don't do it, right? That's what it means. Okay? So... But we have to answer, what is sexual immorality? Because again, this is one of those things that we want to try to narrowly define. Okay, what is, what is sexually immoral in a relationship? Let's start out with some basics. Is adultery sexual immorality? Yes. Is homosexuality sexual immorality? Yes, again. What about bestiality or rape or incest or prostitution? Yes, 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 and yes. Okay. For all you singles out there. What about unchastity or fornication? Yes and yes. Right? What about pornography and masturbation? Yes again. Sexual immorality is any means of unlawful sexual intercourse. Okay? That seems like... That might make some exceptions, but it doesn't. Because what I mean by unlawful is not what the government requires, but what God requires. God is the one who sets the laws. God is the one who gives the commands. And anything that is not according to Scripture is sin. So that's what I mean by unlawful. Intercourse. Got to deal with this one here. Because intercourse does not mean the entering of one into the course of another. Okay, so <laughs> some people have actually tried to define it that way. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean coitus. It doesn't mean insertion, you know. And it, and again, it, this gets back to that whole how far is too far problem. You know, we're, we're automatically trying to redefine this, this term. But if you define it, redefine it in terms of limits, in terms of loopholes, in terms of permissibility, rather than what's beneficial and pleasing to God, you've missed the whole point. Intercourse is another way of describing a relationship. You realize that? That it's an exchange of thoughts, feelings, and emotions, not just physical sensations. Okay? So you need to think of it in terms of cognitive, in terms of emotional in terms of whole being rather than in physical acts. So then it's possible for lusts or sexual, sexually immoral thoughts to fit into this category as well, right? And this too affirmed the scripture. You know, Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her or him in his or her heart, Right? So if you look longingly lustfully at someone you've committed adultery in your heart. Colossians 3 Paul says that sexual immorality is a form of idolatry. Right? So sexual immorality is not limited to physical acts leaving others acceptable as though it's it's somehow okay for unmarried folks to engage in like having petting or oral sex or or sex with your clothes on. It's not about that. It, it's not acceptable either, even when you're alone, to sit in your room with some lotion and the porn. You don't, these are not things that are okay. Because I would argue that even in that being alone, there's an emotional reaction happening. There are thoughts. There are intentions. There, there's feeling that is far beyond physical that's taking place there. And because it's lust, because you're looking after a woman, it's still sexual immorality. You can't get around it. So here's the thing. Whether sex is forced or consensual, whether it's extramarital or it's premarital, whether it happens between two or more, or happens when one person is alone, whether it's physical or simply emotional and cognitive, because there is lustful sexual immorality that takes place merely in the mind. Then it's sexual immorality because it focuses on our hearts. Every sexual act must be examined in light of our heart. You see, again, it's not a physical act. It involves our whole being, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which if we know our Bible, we know that that's to be devoted in love towards God and God alone. It's a spiritual act, an act which identifies the true nature of our hearts. Okay? This is where it gets... So sex, which could be everything from long, lustful looks all the way to coitus, is an act, then, of worship. An act of worship. It's an expression of the worship of our hearts. When we do it within the boundaries and the parameters that God has set forth within a covenantal, loving, heterosexual marriage, this is an act of obedient worship to God. You know? Regularity in that way is a good thing. You know? Practice on. This is something to rejoice in and celebrate. You know? This is good stuff. You know? Serve God in bed. <laughs> Jim would be cracking up right now because he likes to add in bed you know the old Chinese whatever'm <laughs> you know what talking about <laughs> But outside of God's design, outside of God's design, this is sin. It is false worship. It's loving other things more than God. It's loving that feeling of pleasure. It's loving what we see with our eyes or what we can touch with our hands. It's loving that emotional response, and it's loving the thoughts of rebellion against God's will that's in each of us. We don't often think about that one. But let me ask you this. I'm going to make a very safe assumption and say that everybody in this room has lusted after another person. Okay? I think that's a safe assumption. If you're not, you can come talk to me afterwards. We can pry deeply into your life and we'll find something. <laughs> I can also make a safe guess that at least at one time or another, you've acted in order to satisfy that lust with another person. Okay? Maybe, uh, maybe it was something as simple as, uh, you know, emotional sort of connection. Maybe it was making out. Maybe he's going to second base or third base or scoring a home run or whatever, to use that analogy. But you've acted in that lust, right? And in that moment, right before, do you ever recall thinking, man, I don't care. I'm just going to do it. To heck with it. I am going for it. You ever thinking that? I mean, I know that I thought that. And that thought was exciting. That thought fueled my passion. And there was just seemingly this extra little bit of satisfaction in performing whatever that act was because I made that thought. To heck with it. I'm going for it. I don't care. That's rebellion against God. Because you're saying, I don't care what God thinks. To heck with Him. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you knew that what you're doing was against God's will, and that you gladly, willingly, and passionately defied Him. And when we understand that this lust and this rebellion is rooted deeply in our hearts, we realize that we can't define sexual immorality in terms of specific acts. As if this one is okay, and this one's not okay. That going to second base in this situation is somehow permissible, but this is going too far. You see why that's a wrongly framed question? Because everything comes back down to my heart. So we have to broaden our definition. Sexual immorality is any attempt to gratify our sexual desires in a way that is contrary to or rebellious against God's clear commands. And we defy it even in our minds when we pursue lustful thoughts because we are to worship, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. God has designed that sex exists within a covenanted marriage relationship between a man and a woman alone. It's amazing for me to think that in the garden, God made Adam and God made Eve. And before anyone else existed, God instituted marriage. Right? As soon as he took that rib from Adam and formed Eve, the very next thing that he said was, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother. And hold fast to be covenanted to his wife. And then they shall become one flesh. God established sex, this being one flesh, within the context of marriage, before any other human being existed on the planet. Right? This is God's design. God was pleased to give us physical intimacy to be enjoyed and celebrated in this way. This is a good and a glorious thing. But for some, this probably seems like a real downer, right? Even if you affirm the reality of it, it still seems like a downer. And you may be thinking to yourself, why does God keep all the good stuff from us? What's his problem? Why is he so mean? He, He takes this thing and he holds it out there, you know, to tease us, and then pulls it away and says, nope, not until you're married. You know, like, like God's some kind of killjoy. I mean, doesn't God know that this is the greatest form of physical pleasure that we could ever experience? Doesn't God know that this is the greatest sense of intimacy that we could ever experience on this earth? Who told you that? Who told you That this is the greatest form of physical pleasure that you could ever experience on this earth? Who told you that this is the greatest form of intimacy that you can ever have with another person? The world tells you that. A natural world. A world, a fallen world. A world that believes that this is all there is. That you live, that you die and that you might as well make the most of your pathetically short life, because soon you're going to turn to dust. This idea is a myth of sex being the greatest thing. It is a myth. It is not true. But our culture bombards us with it daily. Multiple times daily. That the greatest thing that you can ever experience is sex with another human being. And so it causes us to lust after that physical pleasure. It causes us to lust after that intimacy with another person. We just want to connect so bad. Like somehow all all the emptiness of our soul will be satisfied when we have that other person to connect to. Ask anybody who's been married for a while how that works for them. And if it is the case, then why is the divorce rate so high? I don't. I don't buy it. I believe in a good and a sovereign Creator, and maybe God knows better. You ever think about that? Maybe God, who made sex, said that sex was a good thing. He may even said it was a great thing. But it's not the greatest thing. It's not the best thing that you could experience. Maybe God who created us for intimate relationships, says, yes, there can be deep intimacy in sex, but not the greatest intimacy that you can experience. Not even the greatest intimacy that you can experience with another human being on this earth. God created us to find our true pleasure in him to find our souls satisfaction in him in him is in his presence is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore when we delight ourselves in god when we desire we find our desires in him he will give us the desires of our heart when we realize that true pleasures exist in a relationship with God and with God alone. We can sing and we can mean what we sing when we say better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's God's intention. When we realize that true intimacy with God and with others comes from our being united with Christ, we can rejoice even in chastity because we realize that true intimacy can be had apart from sex. The closeness that we were meant to feel in marital intercourse is just a vivid yet incomplete picture of the intimate covenantal relationship that we can and that we will experience with God through Jesus Christ. Sex is a great thing. It's not the greatest thing. That's a myth. That's a view of a fallen world. It's a lie from Satan himself. A deception that has significant consequences. In order to please God, we must abstain from sexual immorality and unfaithfulness in this area has considerable effects. I mean, first look in verse 4, right? Paul says that sexual purity is necessary for holiness and honor. Time and time again, Scripture affirms that we are to pursue holiness, that we are to pursue that which is honorable. But it can only be done if we know how to control our own body. Now this verse is a little bit difficult to interpret. The translation is actually to acquire possession of your own vessel. What does that mean? Acquire possession of your own vessel. There's been some disagreement about it. Some argue that Paul is saying acquire for yourself a vessel, your own vessel means to get a wife. You know? Seems to make sense, right? After all, Peter in in 1 Peter 3 says that the woman is the weaker vessel. He uses the same word there. And then if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, hey, don't burn with passion. If you're going to burn with passion, go ahead and get married. And so you kind of put two and two together. You think, well, maybe this is a good translation. You just need to get yourself a wife. I don't think that's all that holy and honorable. You know? I mean, think about it. Paul would basically be saying, go get you some woman for sex. That's what it comes down to, right? That's not holy, that's not honorable. I mean, I can picture the marriage proposal now. It's like, hey baby, I want to own you as a sex pot. How's that sound? You know what? God says that I'm not supposed to burn with passion, and I tell you, you're hot. I've been lusting after you, so why don't you come over here and be my vessel of love? Does that sound holy and honorable to you? I mean, just—I don't know—it's, you know, I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but, but basically, you know, that's what—that's what the translation breaks down to. That the reason why you marry is so that you don't burn with lust, and that—that that really demeans marriage and objectifies women. I don't think that that's Paul's intended translation. Another one that's kind of interesting is, is to control your own vessel, as in control the male sexual organ. You know, like keep it in your pants, Jimmy. You know, put your dog on a leash, or criminally, you know, criminally trigger, put your pea shooter down. You know what I'm referring to there. <laughs> You guys are never going to look at that Disney animated Robin Hood again. Same way I can tell you that. Kids will be watching it. you would be cracking up. It's good. Again, it's not good because we've already seen that holiness and honor is a matter first and foremost with the heart and mind, not within physical acts or controlling certain body parts. It's, again, not the best translation. So I think that the ESV has it right, that we need to control our body, not just as in our physical body, but as in our whole selves in holiness and honor and every time Paul uses the word vessel he refers to the body for example in 2 Timothy 2 verse 21 he says therefore if anyone cleanses himself, his entire self from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy useful to the master of the house ready for every good work seems to apply really well here dealing with holiness and honor controlling your whole self So if we are to live to please God, we must pursue holiness and honor with our whole selves by abstaining from sexual immorality. A second issue, sexual immorality actually points to a greater problem in this way. According to verse 5, if you want to look at that, those who are sexually impure are acting in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Do you see what he's saying? you see the implications there? If you're acting in impurity, you know, then then you're acting like somebody he doesn't know God. Again in verse seven, he says that God call when God calls us to himself, it's not for impurity. God does not call us for impurity to continue in our impurity, but he calls us in holiness. So, to continue in sexual impurity is equivalent to not knowing God is to live to live in the passion of lust is to be an unbeliever to still be under the wrath of God. A third consequence is in verse six that you can transgress and wrong your brother or sister in this matter, okay? Paul is probably referring to defrauding or deceiving an immature believer into having a sexual relationship. So, you know, taking somebody who's weak in the church and deceiving them into having sex with you. That's probably where where he's referring to. And we've seen this happen time and time again in the church. We hear of, of all sorts of affairs that happen between, like, you know, the worship leader and the the organist, or some crazy stuff like that. It happens often. And Paul seemed to say that though both are guilty, the one who has actually done the deceiving, the instigator, is is even more liable for that. But I do think that there's a little more here. Okay? When we, who are members of a local church body, sin openly, uh, when we are sexually impure, we bring reproach upon the church. And we threaten the purity of that local body. You know, this is one of the reasons why we practice church discipline to protect the purity of the local church. When we sin openly, we, we transgress and we wrong one another. I mean, do you remember the the issue with Jimmy Swaggart? Right, he was a pastor at New Life Church in in Colorado Springs, Colorado. When it came out that he was having this homosexual affair with this guy. It was destructive. But not just to him. He was not the only one who, who bore the reproach. His church also suffered the consequences. Both in that they it brought shame upon that church, but also it allowed impurity into that church. He, it weakened that church as a whole. And here we see that the God is going to protect his church. Paul's Rebuttal to that is that God is an avenger, right? So God is going to protect his flock. God is going to protect his church. But the ultimate reason why Paul says that we are to take sexual purity seriously is because of verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit, right? So disregarding our need for sexual purity is equivalent to denying our call to salvation. Right? We're not just disrespecting our pastors. We're not just going against our church. We're not just with, just disregarding our parents or the moral standards of society. It says we are denying God. You show disdain for the Holy Spirit that's been given to you. If we are to live as we ought, to please God, our sexual purity is of the utmost importance. So we've seen God's desire for sanctification and we've identified the importance of sexual purity. So now what? What do we do about it? Third, this passage gives us three ways to fight for sexual purity. Now we could spend a ton of time on this, and, and we're we're out of time. We we don't have time to go there. So I want to let you know up front that I've put a lot of resources up on our blog, redeemerchurch.wordpress.com. I listed I, I put up there links to to. Uh, CCEF. I put links up there to Desiring God. Basically, everything that you could possibly want. There are articles. There are blog entries. There are sermons. There are lectures. There's even online books that you can get to from there to read up on the stuff. And I've I've even highlighted some things that I thought were, would be particularly helpful. Because basically, if you go to any one of those sites, you're going to find anywhere from 25 to 100 resources, and you don't know where to start. So I've listed a few that I think are particularly helpful for you. So again, go to redeemerchurch.wordpress.com and look at the latest post. It's Resources for Sexual Purity. But in the text, there are three ways mentioned to fight for sexual purity. The first is that we need to affirm God's design for sex. See that in verse 3. When he says that we're to abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? This seems obvious but it's really not, because as is too often the case, we go through it begrudgingly. We might affirm, "Yeah, God's design is for consensual, heterosexual, covenantal marriage. That's where sex is okay." But underneath our breath, we're constantly grumbling. You know, we're we're saying, "I, I I'll do it," but I don't think it's right. Or maybe we say, "All right, I'll obey." but I'm not going to like it. And if that's your attitude at all, this one of reluctant obedience, then you fail to truly affirm God's design for sex. We fail to see the goodness of God's plan. We fail to see the fact that it actually reveals to us the nature of God. The reason why God... Put sex within the confines of a marriage is because it displays His covenantal love, His desire for intimacy, His patient devotion, His beauty and His glory. God doesn't give us instruction in order to kill our joy. He does it to reveal Himself to us. He does it in order to maximize our joy by guiding us to seek pleasure through the means for which we were created. Rather than squandering ourselves on cheap, temporary amusements. By seeking satisfaction in, in holy and honorable means that God has put in place, we actually maximize our pleasure. I want you to think about something. Another example pertaining to sex. Who do you think is more satisfied in their lover? Okay the guy who for years has gone out night after night looking to just get his pickle tickled? Or is it the guy who has patiently remained pure, who's finally spending that wedding night with the, the woman that he had been praying for, his beautiful, unblemished bride? Who is more satisfied in sex then? obvious God's will for sex is not intended to rob us of pleasure but it is intended to maximize its meaning and in the process to satisfy our souls in him a second way that we can fight for sexual purity is to pursue holy and honorable relationships with one another we see this in verse 4 and verse 6 instead of looking at others as a means of satisfying our own lust, so that we transgress and wrong one another, how about we actually fight for purity by loving and serving one another? Have you ever noticed it's a lot harder to sin when you are genuinely serving another person? God has designed it that way. God has designed it that when we give ourselves selflessly for a noble cause, we find that we're actually sanctified in the process. This is one of the amazing things about the church that he takes a bunch of sinners together puts them in the same location says covenant yourself together serve one another and in the process you get to help one another become more holy. That's amazing. So rather than looking to use one another looking to see how you can serve one another selflessly and in the process you find that you grow. It's a means of sanctification. Furthermore when we affirm that sex is not the only or the greatest means of intimacy that we can experience, we're freed then to pursue deep, plutonic connection with one another. We realize that ultimate intimacy can be had between two people through a holy and honorable union in Christ. And it releases us from this myth of sex so that we can develop intimate relationships with one another through being united in Christ, through finding ourselves in Christ. By the grace of God, we recognize that true intimacy is not found in sex. It's actually found in Jesus. As we pursue intimacy with Christ, we gain more intimacy than we ever could physically. And in the process of our focusing on Christ, we actually grow in intimacy with one another. This is an amazing thing. So finally, the best way that we can fight for sexual purity is by seeking to know and to please God. We find this in verse 1 and verse 5. Knowing Jesus is the key to sexual purity. Not knowing stuff about Him, but, but through pursuing an intimate relationship with Him. By seeking to truly know Jesus, we find Him better. We find Him more satisfying, more pleasurable, more worthy of our devotion than any temporary amusement that this world has to offer. This is what Thomas Chalmers called the ex- explosive power of a new affection. Alright? This is a good sermon if you ever want to look it up. Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. He says, if we're trying to fight for purity... By just trying to rid ourselves of sexual immorality, we're going to fail every time. We are like a vessel that's meant to be full. And if we want to remove the junk from our lives, the sexual impurity, we have to fill it with something that's greater, something that's more substantial, something that's more worthwhile. And that is God. That's God alone. So if you want to fight against sexual purity, if you've come here and you realize, you know what? I affirm God's desire for my sanctification. I realize now the importance of sexual purity, and I want to fight against it. The best way that you can do it is not by, though these could be good means, by removing the Internet and all that kind of stuff. It's ultimately by seeking Christ, seeking to know Him, to be satisfied in Him. So let us not pursue the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But let us seek to know the way we ought to walk, the way we ought to please God, because His will for us is this our sanctification. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in it we're reminded. Of who you are and who we are in light of you, and God, we have to be honest that we we don't even come close to measuring up. We God, we see from Scripture that your desires for our holiness, that you earnestly desire for us to be like you, to be holy as you are holy, and you have given us instruction, you have given us your Spirit. You have given us Your Son so that we might follow in obedience after You. God, I pray that we don't take this lightly. But I pray that our desire would be Your desire for our sanctification. That we would realize that You're not a killjoy. You're not here to destroy our fun. But You're actually here to maximize our joy and our soul satisfaction through Your Son, Jesus Christ. You are in the process of working in us a restoration so that we could be what we were always meant to be. Worshippers of You. So God, I pray that our eyes might be open to see the wonder, the truth, the beauty of Jesus. And I pray that we might want it. And I pray that we would not be hindered by sex. God, it's a good thing. But that's not the best thing. I pray that we would discern the lies that we've been told from the world and seek to live in a way that's pleasing to You by finding our ultimate pleasure, our ultimate intimacy in You. God, help us to fight it together as a body. Now, there are so many in this room that have struggled with sex. God, I pray that we would be honest that we would find someone that we can confide in, that we can walk with, that we can help point towards Christ, that we might not try to do it ourselves. God, I pray that you give us this one holy passion to know and to follow hard after you. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the means that you have given us to do this. We look forward to what you're going to do. God, we beg you, do it. Jesus, come quickly. It's in his name we pray. Amen.